The sermon text today is John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When you think of your own death, what, what comes to your mind? You know, people that are told they have a, a brief amount of time left to live, where does their mind go? You know, for many people, there's a sort of uh, disorientation, shock. They don't really know what to say, what to think, what to do. Uh, but then for many, there's a clarity that comes to your mind. You, you realize uh, there's a quick ordering of priorities. What is most important? What is least important? Uh, you see this quick shuffling of the things that I, were that I was pursuing now seem to be kind of vain and useless. Th there's that clarity that leads you to what's important most in your life. I think you see that in the mind of our Lord as he enters Jerusalem. This is the last time that he'll enter Jerusalem. You know, the crowds are large because it's the Passover celebration. Pilgrims from all over would be coming. But even more so now because Jesus had done such miraculous activity, uh, not the least of which is in chapter 11, just prior to ours, he had healed Lazarus from the dead. And so they were seeing Jesus as this kind of Messiah, a king, a ruler, uh, a, a one who we could put our hope in. And so the crowds were, were quite significant. Jesus is going to, it, you know, that, that's, that's why when he came in, of course, they were waving palm branches. You see this earlier in chapter 12. They were singing psalms. They were laying palm branches down so that he could walk across them. That's why traditionally the week before Easter is called Palm Sunday, uh, because of the palms. They had high hopes for him. But then Jesus, interestingly, instead of just playing through the adulation of the crowds, he begins to speak about his own death. He begins to talk about why not just that he will die, that's true, but he speaks about why he will die, what it will achieve. You know, it is interesting when people give us their last words, we pay attention to that. When they write down things in their last moments, we focus on that. I, I hope that's for you today, that, that you'd be thinking about. These are some of his last words. Actually, the remaining uh, chapters in John will all comprise the last week of his life and ministry. You know, there's an interesting painting in the church at Wittenberg in Germany, Martin Luther's church, the one that he preached at. 
This is back in the 16th century, and it's kind of a three-paneled picture. But on the bottom panel, there are three scenes in one painting. And, and on, the, on the right side, you have Martin Luther, and he's in the pulpit, and he's preaching. His hand is on the Bible, resting on the Word of God, and his finger is pointing to the middle of the painting. On the, on the left side of the painting, you have the congregation. They're very intent. They're kind of straining, actually, for it a little bit. Their eyes are open. You can tell that they're listening intently. So there's Martin Luther in the pulpit pointing, and there's the crowd. And in the middle is a painting of Christ crucified. That's, that's what he's preaching on. That's the central plank of our faith, that he died, that he died. He's speaking about it. They're listening to it intently. I pray that's the case for us because in this chapter he's going to show us three things. He's going to show us the reality of his death. Jesus Christ did die. The Son of God did die. And then we're going to see the reasons for it. And he's going to explain those to us and I pray that they're clear for you. And then he's going to call for a response from the people. Jesus literally will turn to the people and call them to respond to this incredible message that the Son of God would die. So look with me in 27, because you see the reality of it. He says very clearly, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. His soul is troubled. Will you save me from this hour? What is this hour he's talking about? Well, of course, we know the hour to be his death, his death by crucifixion. He's already spoken of earlier, just in the passage right before ours, the hour is likened to a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. In our passage, the hour is likened to him being lifted up, showing us the way that he would die. The hour that he refers to is that he will be crucified. His soul is troubled over this hour. That word for trouble really means turmoil. It means dread. It means this heavy burden upon him. His soul is troubled over this hour. He knows he is walking to the end. He knows that he will be crucified. Can you imagine how you would feel if you knew that day was coming in three or four days for you? I don't think it's just the agony and the, and the suffering and the pain associated with his death that troubled him. I'm sure that was part of it. He was fully man. I think it was the, the sins, our shame, our guilt, all the stuff that we'd want to hide from people. He knew that would all be put upon him, that he would bear that. And that in bearing that, he would suffer some degree of forsakenness from his father. Jesus Christ had never known anything but perfect fellowship with God. And somehow, that would be compromised as the father turns away. I think that's what caused him this deepest trouble. When he asked the question, he says, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? I think he's asking that for us. You know, is he asking for the cup to pass? I, th I think the point that we're seeing here is that Jesus sees the cross as his destiny. And that through it, he will be saved. He will be exalted through it. So Jesus faces the reality. His soul is troubled, and he faces that. Now, there is a bit of irony here that oftentimes, you know, his, his soul is troubled over our sin when our soul is often not troubled over our sin. 
I think our soul is troubled over when others sin against us. I think that troubles us. Uh, but but it's, it's interesting that, that our own sins don't trouble us before God. I, I don't know if we've, if we've relegated Jesus to just being a Savior from our sins. We, we don't necessarily see him as a Savior from the power of sin. We give way to sin so casually, so easily. You know, for us here, I would ask you, are you troubled by your sin? I mean, if you're not troubled at all, if you're not troubled, you've just kind of made peace with it, then I would caution you that the heart of the Christian is troubled over a sin. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Religious Affections, speaks about this False affections, this idea that Jesus can save us from our sins, uh, that can lead to a sort of casualness with our lives, that we're not really troubled by it. Uh, he, he speaks about that the true Christian has the tenderness of a child. You know how he often said that unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you shall not enter it at all. And he draws out the tenderness and the sensitivity of a child. He asks these questions. He says, a little child is easily affected with grief at temporal evils, and his heart is melted. It's, so is the Christian tender with regard to the evil of sin. A little child is easily affrighted at the appearance of outstanding evils or anything that threatens its hurt. So is the Christian to be alarmed at the appearance of moral evil in anything that threatens the heart of the soul. Is this the way you feel? When you have sin, either identified by the Spirit of God or someone points out to you, does it trouble you? Do you repent? In no way does the Christian expect to live a life of perfection in this world. But, but the Christian is one that is constantly looking at his own soul. He's striving to keep his conscience clear before God and man, as Paul said. He's repenting of his sins. He's seeking grace from God. He's drawing in the counsel of the church and the wisdom of brothers and sisters to help him or her walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But if your soul's not troubled at all, I would encourage you to, to speak with someone. Come forward even. Because that would be the indication that you don't have true affections for God. Now for those of you who are very scrupulous, you have, like me, that older brother tendency that we are overly troubled with our sin. That we can pick every sin out of our life, every poor motivation. Let me caution you to rest in the gospel. Jesus will say in just a couple chapters, don't let your hearts be troubled. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Jesus will reconcile us to the Father through, through faith. So Jesus' cross is sufficient for us. So for those of you who are over-scrupulous, who are constantly finding out the sins in your own life and, and really causing you to fail to appreciate all that Christ has done for you. Enjoy the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Christ. Not as a license to sin, really, but as a point of building affections for the one who has come to die for you. So we see this reality of death that he is facing. But then he moves to the reasons for his death. And we see this in 28, the to 33, he gives us reasons. Uh, notice what he says here. He says, 
What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, no, I was, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. But for this purpose. He's going to give us the reasons. He's going to, you know, I think Jesus knows that the death of the Messiah will cause confusion in the hearts of many. And so he gives us reasons. Now, what would be some of the reasons that you could think of? If you were to stand up and just shout out your first thought about why did he come and die for us? What would you say? Would you say he died to save me? Or you might say, he died to save me from my sins. Now, no doubt you'd be right. Jesus throughout the Gospels is very concerned for us. He meets the needs of his people. But I don't think you'd be primarily right. If you notice, what is the first reason that Jesus gives? He says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus Christ sees the first reason for his own death is that God may be glorified in all the world. That God will be glorified. And you know, God answers the prayer. God does. A voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Now, you know he has glorified it because uh, back in John chapter 9, Jesus gave sight to a blind man. God was glorified in that. It says it right in the text. John chapter 11, Jesus gave life to a dead man, and they glorified God for that. He says, I have glorified it. But notice what God says, I'll glorify it again. God is going to be glorified in this humiliating death of his son. How? How can that bring God glory? Well, it's going to show for us in a tremendously public way the love that God has for sinners. It's going to show the incredible mercy of God in extending grace to people who are broken and don't deserve it at all. It's going to show the the mystery of how God mingles his perfect justice with mercy for people who don't deserve it. It shows the immeasurable riches of his grace to us. How can you not look at the cross behind me and just think God is a kind God? He deserves our glory. That's why God confirms his words. You know, when God confirms it, you you see people react differently to divine utterances in Scripture. Some go on a naturalistic track. Well, it's just, it's thundered. We have to figure out something in this world that can explain what is unexplainable. Others go in kind of this nebulous spirituality. Well, it must have been an angel. It must have been a spirit or something. We know what the point is. God is confirming to us that, no, his son, his son, he spoke from it. This is only the third time in his ministry, once at his baptism, once at his transfiguration, and here now at the proclamation of his own death, God speaks. Do you realize that the cross, the reason for the cross is so that we would glorify God? Isn't it amazing how quick we can take his mercies, though, and make them about us? You know, we look at the cross and we think, well, he saved me from my sins. You know, th- there, is, there, is, there is the threat of error in theology, and it's in the nuance. It is true that we have been saved from our sins. But we've been saved to go further. We've been saved to glorify God. We've been saved to enjoy God. God has not just saved us to kind of protect us from the threat of hell. He's gathering together a people. He's restoring a creation that has fallen. God is not going to let his creation remain in a state of turmoil and trouble. He's going to bring all things together that we might have fellowship with God. God is building a kingdom. 
And he's calling people into it. And we're going to be with him forever. And we're going to worship him and enjoy him. The creator of all things has stooped to save us so that we would be with him. So it's not this individualistic salvation. It's calling together a company of redeemed in a redeemed world for God. So much that God has planned. The cross is so that we, do you glorify, do you see your life as a way to glorify him? Do you look at your marriage, the way you love your wife or, or love your husband? Do you see that as a point of, God, I want to glorify you in my service, in my care, or in your parenting, or at the office? God, I'm going to come in here. I want to be successful, not simply for my advancement up the ladder. I want you honored. I want people to know that I'm a Christian, and I work with integrity and diligence and honesty and care for others. Does your life reflect the glory that is to be ours for those of us living in light of this cross? So the first reason is that God would be glorified. Look at the second reason with me in 31. 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is what Jesus is going to accomplish through his death. When you think of judgment, though, we think of the end time. We think of just go all the way to the end. But Jesus says, now is the judgment on this world. and the world. What's he mean by that? Well, I think the judgment that falls on this world now is at the cross, that the cross has brought a judgment. In other words, the gospel's been declared, the son has been sacrificed, he's been raised, now judgment begins. We exist in a time of judgment right now. It is proceeding along, perhaps slowly, but there is a dividing that is going on right now between those who accept the good news of the gospel and those who reject it. It's happening right now. Jesus said this back in John chapter 3. He says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. That's happening now. We're, we're Christians who are already and not yet. It's already happening. It's not yet complete, but it's happening now. Do you realize the people that you rub shoulders with all the time, the judgment is just proceeding like a slow-moving train? But not just the judgment of the world, the judgment of Satan. Satan, that's the ruler of this world, identified later in John, that he's been, his tyranny, his reign of tyranny has been decisively defeated. That's the irony of God that we're going to come back to. I mean, I mean here you have a cross, a, a picture of absolute defeat, and yet it's a place of absolute victory. The victim is the victor. He wins. He has removed from Satan his one weapon. That was that he was able to accuse us before the Father of sin. He was able to say to the Father, you cannot forgive them. You're a just God. They are sinful people. But then when God provides a substitute for these sinners, God provides his own son, that God can be both just and the justifier of those with faith. He removes from Satan the one weapon, which is his ability to rightly accuse us of sin, because now we're forgiven. 
This is Paul's point in Galatians or Colossians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses. God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. That is what Satan would have pointed to, a record of debt. There were legal demands that we suffer for our sins, that we are separated from God. But look what he says. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross brought forgiveness, thereby the accuser of the brethren has been vanquished. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Do you realize what that means? This is what John Stott says, he says, what looks like the defeat of goodness by evil is also more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. This is incredible. The fact that judgment is happening now, that the cross began this judgment of separating the sheep and the goats, even now it's happening. But I grant you, it moves slowly. And you think, yeah, is it even happening? You know, some things are so slow that you don't even know is it happening. I used to have a former professor at seminary who said the greatest day of the world, the greatest day was the death of the son. There is no, there is no higher point in all of redemptive history than the death of the son. It wasn't the resurrection. The resurrection's great. We're coming to that. I'm excited about it. But the resurrection makes sense because of the death. It was the death of the Son of God for us. That's why Paul said, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. You know, we think about the end days being the big deal. What's going to happen? How's it all going to go down? This professor used to say, it's, it's a mop-up operation. That's a cleaning-up operation. It's all been decided. He's died and he's been raised for our justification. But I grant you, it goes slowly. But it comes... I don't want you to forget that. You know, when I was a kid, go sailing with my dad, you know, I've told you a hundred stories, you don't know this one, but we would often sail up the Severn River. It's this beautiful river that leads into Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Kind of a narrow river, but it has some hills on both sides, houses dotting the shore. We would sail, and at the mouth of the Severn, you come to the United States Naval Academy. It's a beautiful institution, and it opens to the bay, the Chesapeake Bay, which is a big body of water, great body of water to sail. And as a little kid, it seemed huge. It was like an ocean to me. And you look across to the eastern shore, because Maryland is kind of separated by the Chesapeake Bay in, in its southern part, and you look across the shore and you could hardly see it. It looked about that big to you. And we'd be sailing over there and you think, I'm never going to get there. It's never going to get there. You know, the boat's moving along at maybe two or three or four knots. The wind's moving us along. But you never seem to get to the other side. But then slowly, time just keeps passing, and the shore starts to get bigger, and, and the detail gets a little sharper, and you realize you're there. That's the way it is with judgment. Judgment just, the, the grains of sand just keep dropping. You don't think it'll ever pass. It'll come. Let me assure you, it'll come. The shore will be seen. Now listen, after this service, you're probably going to go home and uh, maybe cut the lawn, maybe watch the masters, play with the kids. That's the stuff we do, and that's fine. But don't forget this. Don't forget that now judgment has come because of the death. It's happening now. 
These things are all occurring now. It's not to remove the joy of the things of this life. Let the things of this life remind you of the goodness of God. But don't forget, those sands are just dropping. Just piece by piece. So he has brought judgment to the world through his death. Thirdly, if you see, thirdly, in verses 32 and 33, he has come to save. He has come to save men and women. That's why he came. Look what he says there in 32. He says, and I, when lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is to make clear the kind of death he was going to die. You, you notice John adds that editorial comment right there? You know, Jesus didn't whisper that in John's ear. That's John later adding. This was to make sure we get the point that his lifting up was going to mean his death. And his death would be the means by which he draws all people to himself. He's going to be lifted up from this earth on a cross, bearing our sins, carrying our shame. He will bear the curse of God all the way back in Genesis 3. He will bear the curse for us. He is our substitute. Just like the serpent was lifted up, so will Jesus be lifted up to save. But I want to remind you of something. This idea of being lifted up has a double meaning to it. It's not just lifted up on a cross to die. He will be lifted up on a cross to die so that we will lift him up in glory. Jesus is the servant of God, spoken about in Isaiah 52 and 53. And in Isaiah 52 we read, My servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. We, seeing him high and lifted up, seeing our salvation tucked completely in him, will worship him. Will you not make your boast of the one who has laid down his life for you? Will you not love the one who has shed his blood for you? Will you not exalt the one who has borne your curse and shame and guilt? All the sin that should rightly separate you from God, he has borne for you. He is to be high and lifted up. We're to make much of him as he draws all people to himself. He must draw us to himself. We, we won't go there on our own. No one among us is smart enough to understand all that he is apart from God's grace. No one is even smart enough to know how broken we are to need such a Savior. We need help. More than help, we need absolute help. And that is what God has done for us in grace, drawing us to himself, drawing us to the Son. And you notice he says he'll draw all people. Now, we don't think this means each and every one. That would be universalism. That was condemned by the church centuries ago. In fact, in Greek, there is no people there. He just says he will draw all. That's it. All what? All peoples, all ethnicities. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be around the throne on that final day. He's not just a savior of Israel. He's a savior of the world. He's going to draw all peoples to himself. But it's interesting how he does it, isn't it? It has to precede. The exaltation is preceded by humiliation. The, the joy of the crown is preceded by the suffering of the cross. The life eternal is, is preceded by death. This is the way God does things. That the hardness is followed by the joy. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian uh, back in the mid to late uh, 20th century. 
And he talks in his book, True Spirituality, about this order that Jesus had to embrace to redeem us. It's rejected, slain, and raised. Rejected, slain, and raised. And for us to walk in true spirituality, for us to really understand what it means to be a Christian, we follow the same pattern. Rejection, death, and then we're raised. That's the order for us. That's the order. You know, Martin Luther, uh, in his day, he had the same problem that we have with prosperity teachers and the like. And, you know, if God's powerful and great and mighty, he should be able to heal people and, and fix things and change my marriage and heal my children and so forth. They were called theologians of glory because they wanted, to God, they wanted God to use his power and act in a way that was in accordance with the way the world would do it. He says, but we're theologians of the cross. We understand the cross. And what the cross means is that God does things opposite from what we think. God conquers in weakness. God shows greatness in service. God, knows, God shows power in gentleness. This is why we're not surprised when our kids get sick or marriages struggle or hardships come to us or people get diagnosed with diseases that will take their life. We're not surprised by that. We want to glorify God in that. He has set before us this model of the cross. We're theologians of the cross. We're rejected, slain, but then we're raised. We're not triumphalists. We don't rah, rah, God's going to clean house. We don't, we don't walk that way. We walk with humility, recognizing that in this world, it is filled with trouble. But we can be of good cheer that he's overcome the world. So we're not triumphalists and we're not despairing. Our delight is but delayed. That's all. It's delayed. It's not vanquished. We're theologians of the cross. He's come to remind us of that. We've been saved by one who is lifted up. We will bring him glory even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our struggle, because we know, we know that it's going to be the opposite, because that's what God does. So you see Jesus, he faces the reality of his death. He explains the reasons for his death. And then he calls for a response. What are you going to do with his death? You know, notice what the crowd says to him. They bring up and they bring their scriptural knowledge and they say, listen, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? In other words, they're kind of showing their metal here. They're saying, hey, listen, we've read Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is about this Messiah who's going to have the earth as a footstool for his feet. And we know Daniel 7 and the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is a heavenly being with an eternal kingdom. We get that. How can you say that the Messiah, that the Christ is going to be lifted up? They knew what lifting up meant. That's why they're confused. They knew it meant that he was going to die. And so they're asking, what gives? And notice what Jesus does. He warns them. But he does it so gently. Look at how he says, he says, the light is among you in 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become children of light. Jesus is saying to them, 
what are you going to do with my death? Will you believe in me in spite of the apparent defeat? You know, Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4. He says, you know, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The people in the shadow of death. Upon them a light has dawned. Jesus is the light of God. He's the light of the world, leading people out of darkness. What will you do, he says. He instructs us, believe in the light, believe in me. That's what Jesus is calling for. He's calling for us to rest our faith in this crucified, apparently defeated Savior. You know, it, it's, it's a word for each one of us. I mean, there's an urgency to this response, I think you feel. He says, for a little while longer. Now, for them, that meant while they were there on this earth. For a little while longer is for us. We don't know how long we have on this earth. Let us not be guilty of presumption that we just had, naturally have an 85-year span in front of us. Let's not, let's not assume that. I think there's an urgency, not an anxiety, but I think an urgency. But there's also a humility here. You, you notice he's calling them to believe in him in spite of his death. Uh, there's a humility. They're saying to him, how can you say this? This is what we know. This is what we think. You know, it's amazing when I talk to people about the nature of the gospel or Jesus Christ. People are very, very, they're not even embarrassed to say, well, this is what I think about God. Well, this is the way I feel about God. Now, I'm, I'm often tempted to ask, well, like, why do you think that? Well, that's just the way I think. And I said, well, we used to think the place was flat, um, as in the earth was flat. We weren't right on that one. How do we know we're so right? You know, if you could have taken the people in Galileo's day and shoot them up on a space shuttle and let them see the curvature of the word, they'd have a different perspective to see that maybe they're not seeing it all right. They're not thinking it all right. Well, Jesus has given us that perspective. You know, in John 1.18, he says that no one has seen God, but God, the one and only, who has been at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus has exegeted God to us. We ought to take the perspective of Jesus and humble ourselves. I don't know what you've thought about Jesus before, but maybe Jesus should explain Jesus to us. And we just take his words as they come. But it still requires us to believe. It still requires us to rest our faith on one who has died. When I speak about faith, I don't mean an intellectual agreement. I mean that there is you are trusting your soul. You're trusting the hopes of your future upon one who has died, but who has been raised. Such that if you were to stand before God, you wouldn't look at anything you've been able to accomplish or the change that you've been able to make. You would look to him alone as one who would be worthy of being accepted. I'm not going to be sharing with God whatever accomplishments I've accomplished in this life. It's through Christ alone that we're saved. Our faith rests upon him. And particularly if you're here today and, and you haven't given much thought to what that final day would be. You haven't given much thought to your own death. That, that you would be touched by how Jesus is looking at his death. He faces the reality of it, but walks forward. He gives us reasons for it. That Fundamentally, it is that God would be honored through both the judgment of this world and the salvation of men and women, and that we respond by faith to it. And again, by putting your faith in Christ, I'm saying you're casting 
the care of your entire soul upon his work for you alone. Not you and Jesus. He's not your co-pilot. He, he is alone in this redemptive work as he has died for us and been raised. Let's take a minute. I, I pray that it would lead you to a deeper worship of God. Let's take a minute and just maybe think through the implications of what it means that he's died for us. Give him a word of worship, and then I will pray for us in a moment.